Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is episode four of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy. Find out more on our website at docio.edconroy.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Docio podcast with me, Edmund Conroy. This is the second part out of two on the meaning of linguistics. Joining me today will be Professor Emeritus Frederick J. Neumeyer from the University of Washington. Professor Neumeyer is a world leading scholar on linguistics. Together we will be looking at the evolutionary origin of language, the politics of linguistics, autonomous linguistics and how linguistic forms and grammatical features affect our thinking and conceptualization. So, without further ado, let's begin the meaning of linguistics. Please welcome my guest, Professor Frederick J. Neumeyer. You're listening to episode four of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Neumeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. But um, I wanted to ask some questions about, um, how do we put this? The relationship between between grammar and culture, um, mm-hmm. which I know might seem like an odd one, but we did kind of, we, we are kind of talking about that when we talk about dictionaries and the influences of dialect and stuff. So in one of your articles, you quote a linguist, I believe, uh, called Sapir. Mm-hmm who said, and I am not quoting the whole quote because I think it's a slightly lengthy quote, but language actually defines experience. So I guess my question is, does language shape our thinking? Uh, does it shape our outlook? Are there occurrences of experiencing of experiences shaping languages? Are grammar and culture really so independent of one another? Now, I know this isn't really a, a linguistic question. <coughs> uh, well, it is. But um, my, my, the, the thing that I was thinking of about experience shaping language was um, one of the nursery rhymes. Um, one, of the, what's not, one of the nursery rhymes, one of the oh. famous ones, Ringer Ringer Roses. Uh, oh, yeah. Famously, whether it's true, I mean, you, I think this one's debated, but I, I grew up being told that that was because of the plague. Um, that that song came about now obviously that's children it's nursery rhyme it's not really the shaping of a language or or maybe it is but um 
I wondered, are there events that have shaped language? Um, and quite often it seems that grammar and culture are really divorced from one another. Um, is that true? Are they, are they interdependent? What, what's the story, I guess? Oh, actually, let me just start, even though this is not directly, I mean, you brought up Ring Around, Ring Around the Roses, which is said differently in North America than in the UK. Did you know that? Uh, well, uh, yeah, yeah, I did. I did uh, kind the of Ring Around that. the Rosy, a pocket full of posies. You say that, right? But then we say, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. Right. <coughs> Whereas we, yeah, a pocket full of poses, a tissue, a tissue. We say a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. We say ashes, ashes. Um, um, so obviously that nursery rhyme was brought to North America by people who spoke a dialect of British English that had a different way of saying this rhyme, mm. which I mean, it's, it's fascinating. And ashes, ashes, again, from burning mm. things to keep the plague away. I mean, so it's the same idea. Okay, but now the big hard question Linguists differ about how intimately grammar and culture are related. <clears throat> they can't be very closely related because all kinds of grammars are found with all kinds of cultures. So where in some languages like Welsh, the verb comes first, in some languages like English, the verb comes second, some languages like Japanese, the verb comes at the end, SVO, OSV, you, you know all this. Um, what's the correlation between the culture of Welsh, English, and Japanese people? Answer is zero. Okay. Now, we can find certain ways, vocabulary, clearly. Um, their vocabulary reflects culture, it partly influences it. Uh, color terms is one way perception influences the kinds of color terms we have but what it's hard to find really good examples of somebody says well in this culture they have look look how their relative clauses work or something you know like that that's look how intimate that relationship is then you find another language with the same kind of relative clauses um, and there's a totally different culture. It's really, really hard, except in maybe some very specific cases to find a relationship between grammar and culture. If by grammar, <clears throat> we mean the sound systems, or if we mean the uh, syntax. Now, there are correlations. So for example, uh, the, the, the rarest grammatical features that is, you know, languages that have 50, 60 distinct sounds or languages that have unbelievably complex morphology tend to be found in uh, cultures that are small, small number of people and are fairly isolated. Whereas the big world languages um, like Chinese or not Chinese so much because it's only spoken in really a couple countries, but French or English or Swahili uh, or Malay Indonesian, which is spoke, tend to have relatively uncomplex, uh, un, 
they don't have a lot of very unusual typological features. And it's easy to see why, because these are languages that so many people, millions of people have learned as a second language. And that's when complexity gets leveled. So Swahili is quite a bit simpler than the other Bantu languages spoken around it. Indonesian is a lot simpler than the various regional languages of Indonesia. Mandarin Chinese is actually simpler than most of the other Chinese languages called dialects. It only has four tones. Whereas like Cantonese has, what is it, six? Uh, other regional languages of China have a lot more tones than that. Mandarin has a simpler sound system. So, I mean, that's a correlation between language and culture, but I don't think you should make too much out of it. Just to pick up on something you said, uh, Mandarin has six, uh, four tones. Um, just to um, kind of put that in context for me, who doesn't speak another language, because I'm terrible, um, how many tones does English have? None. Oh. <laughs> English is okay. not a tone language. A tone language is a language where the dictionary entry of a word has to say what the pitch of that word is. English doesn't have any words like that. Right, um, okay. What would French do with its um, um, accents and things, or is that not? No, that's, that's not tone. Um, Swedish marginally has tones, but you find tone languages in, in various regions of the world, East Asia, so Chinese, all the Chinese languages, Thai, Vietnamese have tones. West Africa, uh, Central America. And that's those are the three big centers for tone languages. Um, but no, uh, if you're writing a dictionary of English or French, you don't have to put along the word cat, dog, uh, run, whether you pronounce this word with a rising tone or a falling tone or a level tone. There's sentence intonation. Um, that's different. So in French, uh, there's always an emphasis on the last syllable or word in a sentence. English is extremely complex in terms of where, so where the stress falls. It's one of the hardest things for people learning English. But no, English, French, the languages of Europe don't have lexical tone. You're listening to episode four of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Neumeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. Moving slightly on, but still talking about culture and languages. I have been told, I have been told, and I could be wrong, so you will be correcting me, I'm sure. But in English is what is called an accusatory language. So we might say that Helen broke the vase, but in Spanish, they would say something like the, the vase broke. Um, is that true? Have I completely misunderstood what someone is explaining to me? You know, I, I've heard this too. I mean, so um, in English, you say it fell. Uh, in Spanish, se me cayó, that is, it dropped itself from me. Um, I, these examples are so far and few and far between, in my opinion, that we can't really... There, there are languages where for reasons of politeness, totally cultural reasons, uh, people are more indirect. So okay. the languages of East Asia are always given ex as examples. 
um, a lot of languages of East Asia, Japanese, for example, Javanese, <clears throat> have these very complex systems of honorifics uh, around about speech where you're never direct. That's a style, it's not really grammar. Whereas the language of Eastern Europe are, uh, don't have these kinds. They're much more direct. People are much more direct when they speak. So we have indirect speech acts in English. So we might say to somebody at the dinner table, can you pass the soul? That's very indirect. You're not really asking them about their ability to do something, but you're, you're indirectly asking for them to pass the soul. I am told, I don't know Czech, I am told that in Czech, if you said to somebody at dinner, can you pass the soul? They would say, uh, well, I can, why are you asking? So when I was at school, when I was at school and you'd say, oh, can I go to the toilet? The teacher would say, say, would say I don't know, can you? You know, as a kind of, to get you to say it properly. So is that not a, that, that, that's, that, that's, that's obviously a phrase we'd use, but obviously not one that is correct. It's, it's what linguists call an indirect speech act. Uh, that is a way of communicating some request or demand while making it sound grammatically like you're doing something else. So you see somebody's car is broken down on the side of the road and you pull over and you might say, um, I'd like to help. Okay, that is taken as an offer of help, not as some statement of the speaker's internal desire in their head, right? Right, yeah. Uh, and English is full of that. Every language has indirect speech acts, some seemingly more than others. Okay. So uh, the Asian language. So to, I mean, Chinese, we've, we've had lots of Chinese, Japanese students, Korean students, and they're always shocked at first about how direct we are. And we're always so frustrated by how they're so indirect. Get to the point, you know, what exactly are you trying to say? This is cultural. It doesn't really reflect fundamental grammatical differences, but what, how you use your grammar. You're listening to episode four of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Newmeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. I was also told um, by a friend who is Russian, and I'm not quite sure whether they told me in Russian. So I had a translating, uh, an auto translator, because it was how we discussed. Um, um, they were telling me that Russian um, doesn't have a sentence structure in the way that we do. So we have uh, subjects and objects and they, they occur in specific orders depending on your language. But Russian, I'm told, doesn't have that. It can happen in any order. So you can have your verbs before your objects or afterwards and subjects can occur at the beginning and end. Um, uh, my real question there is, does this kind of sentence structure thing become important in languages? Does it influence the way that we perceive things in the world around us? I mean, how do you, yeah, I guess, is that true? Well, Russian, Russian is what's called a free word order language, which is a little mis a little inaccurate because you just can't put anything in any order. Uh, okay. Latin, Latin was exactly the same. So uh, Russian, Latin, quite a few languages scattered around the world. You can do exactly what you just said you can do. Now, it's not random. If you want to emphasize 
a particular, so the subject or the verb or the object, you might put it in a particular order in that sentence. So you're communicating things differently. In English, we have to use other grammatical resources because English is not a free word or a language. Um, does this reflect something deep about Russians or Romans? I mean, I assume Latin Roman culture 2,000 years ago and Russian culture today is rather different. I don't think so. It's just one of many ways that languages can do things in a different way, in their own way. You're listening to episode four of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Neumeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. So from my very limited understanding, you were influential within linguistics as advocating advocating a middle road between kind of the nature-nurture debate of linguistics um, I'm probably phrasing that, whereby we are hardwired with language versus learning it culturally. Is, this, um, is that, first of all, a good layman's understanding? And could you just explain to me what the debate is and your position on it and how that has, um, how the field looks today at language and language development, I guess, as that's kind of what it applies to? Well, I mean, I think the biggest debate, the biggest issue in linguistics is to what extent language is usage-based that is to what extent the structures of language reflect the needs of communication. Now Chomsky, and Chomsky has never denied that language to a certain extent is influenced by communication, but he doesn't think it's very important. I mean, for Chomsky has always stressed um, the innate syntactic structures of language. Functionalists, usage-based linguists, this is the opposite to Chomsky, have always said, well, you know, there's not good hard evidence that any grammatical features are hardwired, rather they arose over um, historical time and are constantly being shaped by communication. Um, that's, the fun, that's the extreme functionalist position. I think that, as you say, I mean, I think there is a middle position. I mean, I don't deny the idea of universal grammar, that is things that are hardwired into the brain reflecting language, but also I think Chomsky underestimates the degree to which grammars um, are responses to effective communication. They reflect the frequency of use of, of whatever element. So I think a comprehensive theory of language, it's not gonna be by me, one thing I'm too old, um, is gotta somehow reconcile these two uh, seemingly opposite trends. Now, I mean, I think there's a lot uh, more optimistic than I used to be because Chomsky, I don't wanna go into details of syntactic theory, but Chomsky, 20, 30 years ago would stress how much universal grammar, that's the word for the innate syntactic structures, how much there is and how important it is. And lately with a minimalist program in the last 10, even 20 years, he's saying that, well, actually universal grammar is less extensive. A lot is handled by factors interacting with universal grammar. He doesn't identify exactly the same thing that functional linguists do, but certainly it's an opening wedge 
to reconciling the, the two positions. So I'm fairly optimistic um, that um, there will be this kind of reconciliation gradually over time. And, you know, Chomsky's influence has been so extreme. And you can say that's, I mean, there's nobody in the world who I learn more from, who I, I think of as just somebody almost superhuman. At the same time, it's not healthy that any field be dominated so much by one person. Um, I mean, he's 92 right now. Um, so he's, well, realistically, he's not going to be coming up with a lot of new theories over the next 20 or 30 years. Um, and so, in, fa in fact, he's, most of his work nowadays is politics, is political writings, and, and much less, much less linguistics. So, so funny you should say that, because my next question was going to be asked how your view differs from Chomsky's. You're listening to episode four of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Neumeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. But also the fact that you brought up there, I know Chomsky from politics. I had no idea about his linguistic background until I was reading stuff by you and, you know, things about linguistics and seeing Noam Chomsky, Chomsky's name and going, I thought he was a political theorist, not a linguist. But actually, linguistics was his, his background. Yeah, he has three degrees in linguistics. For someone so active in politics, it's, it's quite an interesting quite an interesting thing to be doing, to, to have that background. I guess, um, but you both had a, had a similar political uh, background back in the, was it the, in your student days? Would that be a fair thing to have said? Uh, in my student days, yes. I was uh, belonging to international socialists, uh, Trotskyists, et cetera. They're, so it's the Socialist Workers' Party in, in the UK. Uh, it's the same mm. group. Um, but I mean, I, you know, if Marxism is unity of theory and practice, I haven't had a whole lot of practice for a long, long time. So I, I cannot compare myself to Chomsky. I mean, I certainly, uh, I would never dream of doing that. I mean, the amount that he's done politically is just breathtaking. I mean, yeah. He writes a few books a year, let's not forget. I know. I, I don't know how anyone has that capacity. Though you yourself, um, I, I noted when I was, again, researching as part of this, You've written, I wrote this down and I haven't got it in front of me, which is always terrible, but you've written something like a hundred articles. Um, I haven't counted them, but that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, over, I think it was well over a hundred academic articles, which is, which is a substantial output. You know, I, I mean, I, I, I think academics, they dream of that much output and that many publications too, because a lot write articles, but don't ever get published on them. Uh, that, that was kind of a little bit of divergence from our, from our talking. You're listening to episode three of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Neumeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio podcast. As someone who's dyslexic, I kind of have to ask, am I hardwired to suck at grammar and linguistics, or is the picture more complex than that? If you're dyslexic? Yeah. I, I honestly don't know a lot about dyslexia, but I think it's a speech problem, not a language problem. In other words, dyslexics have the same um, 
underlying grammatical system, but there's something that prevents their output from being, but I, I mean, I think dyslexia, again, this is way past, I mean, you might as well ask me about Renaissance art. This is how much I know about dyslexia. But, 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 but I think that in fact, it's a cognitive problem uh, that involves accessing your grammar, not a grammar problem per se. You're listening to episode four of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Newmeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. So I'm regularly told that I write how I speak, and most of the time this is seen as a negative. Yet I am rarely misunderstood in my oral communication. So the question here is why should my written grammar not reflect my spoken grammar and be acceptable? That, I mean, that, that's a good question. There are societal norms, conventions governing everything, right? Able manners. And there, as long as there's been written language that we know about, there have been norms about how you should use it and how you shouldn't use it. That was certainly true for the Romans. Uh, the average Roman soldier didn't speak anything like Cicero. And of course, it's the speech of the Roman soldier that became the Romance languages, not the speech of Cicero, right? Because the soldiers were the ones who spread Latin into Spain and France and Gaul. So it's not fair. I mean, you could argue that, well, if everybody just wrote the way they talked, their communication would break down. I don't know. I'm not convinced that's true. But the fact is that certain ways of writing and speaking are considered acceptable, educated, and others aren't, they're stigmatized. So I don't really have anything to say. I mean, it's unfair. It's unfair. Um, and it stigmatizes people, generally speaking, from disadvantaged minority backgrounds more than educated people, because we learn the correct way to speak from early childhood or to write and uh, people whose access to education is as good as, isn't as good as others don't, which puts them at an extra disadvantage. It's not fair, but again, it's something that is universal as far as I know. Either way, it's not going to be a, a, an excuse I can use with lecturers. So, you know, I, I was just asking. Well, you can try. You can try. Go ahead. You're listening to episode four of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Newmeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. I read parts of a few of your papers. I believe I read a chapter of one of the books you've written or at least contributed to. Um, I did do a lot of reading and I didn't read everything all the way through. I read some things. But one thing that popped up um, was autonomous linguistics. Could you just explain what that is, please? Well, this this actually goes back to the beginnings of historical comparative linguistics that I talked about a while ago. Um, one of the amazing discoveries of 19th century linguistics was that you can say a lot about language change without knowing or caring anything about the culture society of the speakers of that language. In other words, Grimm's law, uh, the various sound changes didn't just happen based on a 
a particular culture, but they just have sound changes, regular, ignoring the culture. There's no, now that in the 20th century, starting with Saussure, uh, became the hallmark of structuralist and then generative linguistics that we can talk about the grammar of a language. And by grammar, I mean the syntax, the phonology, morphology, without saying anything whatsoever, knowing or caring anything whatsoever about the culture, society, beliefs of the people who speak that language. That's what's meant by autonomous linguistics. Now, nobody who practices autonomous linguistics wouldn't say that a full theory of language has to account for everything, society, how it's used in whatever, uh, indirect speech acts, you know, as we were talking about. But autonomous linguistics is the idea that linguistics can be, language can be studied by itself, in and of itself, without, divorced to a very, very great extent from culture. Not everybody believes that. Most linguists do to one extent or another. Even the most hardcore functionalist linguists wouldn't say that um, there's some necessary correlation between whether you pronounce R's at the ends of words where they're spelled and the culture. You're listening to episode four of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Neumeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. So um, I guess uh, this is kind of, we're coming near to the end of um, the questions I have that I've written. I do have three questions from listeners. But before we get to them, I, I guess the final question to ask, as it is the title, for you, what would you say is the meaning and I guess the value of linguistics, both as a subject, as a discipline, but also as a, um, you mentioned, applied science? Well, I mean, language has always been called the most distinctively unique human trait. So to learn about language is to learn about humans. So that's just from a general intellectual motivation that, well, you know, we want to know what it means to be human. That means we want to know about language. Um, now, in a more broader context, language is at the heart of a whole lot of things. Uh, there are language riots. Um, there's language conflicts, even in, I mean, Western Europe. I mean, look at Belgium, um, look at Corsica, look at places where there are conflicts. I mean, it's not just about language. It's about background, culture, history, and so on. But language comes to the fore because language is so visible, so evident. Um, that's why for so many centuries, the effort was made to stamp out local languages, Gaelic in Scotland, for example, um, Breton in France. Now, of course, if these languages are barely holding on, oh, what a treasure we have to, I just got an email from a friend at the University of Edinburgh, um, a colleague, and at the bottom, uh, it's a University of Edinburgh is a blah, blah, blah sort of institution in English and then in Scots Gaelic. I mean, this just happened, you know, very, very recently. I didn't notice that from you in Sterling, but in, in Edinburgh, certainly they do that. Um, so, I mean, language is at the heart of so many, so many conflicts. Language is at the center of the technological revolution, information revolution, because 
if you want friendly computers, how do you make them friendly? Well, you program them to understand human language. Who knows more about the formal properties of human language than linguists do? Um, language just enters into every single human activity. So yeah, it's important. And I think every linguist would agree with what I just said. You're listening to episode four of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Neumeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. Uh, let, let's move on to the kind of the listener questions then. Okay. So, uh, Greg from Inverness, why are second languages harder to learn than first languages? I guess, yeah. Um, well, um, they're not if you learn them young enough. There is no known limit to the number of languages a small child can learn at the same time. And we have lots of examples. Uh, a linguist, Morris Halley, um, died a few years ago, but he was one of the pioneers of generative grammar. Um, Halley grew up in Latvia speaking seven languages natively. Um, oh. Now, um, this is Latvia between the world wars when there were, you know, you know, he spoke Lithuanian and Latvian and, and Russian and German and Yiddish and Polish. And each one was, he kept them straight because each one was used in a different sphere of his life. Now, why can't adults, except for some genetic anomalies who I could name in linguistics, why can't adults do that? Well, probably because our brain wiring gets too rigid. Um, that there, we don't, we can't approach a second language as adults the way a child can, because child's brains are programmed to just take in languages and learn them. And but once you re reach a certain point, this happens gradually uh, in childhood. Uh, well, past puberty is pretty well fixed. Your brain just can't do it. Um, not everybody's the same. Some are much better than others, um, but um, it, it's very physiological. It's not psychological in the way the term is usually used, that human brains just can't do this past a certain point without difficulty. Okay. I mean, adults can learn second languages, but it's hard. Shell from Dumblain says, why are there so many alphabets? And do alphabets have a common original alphabet? Well, you know, uh, there's so many alphabets because alphabetic writing has developed independently or, I mean, all over the world. But in fact, if by alphabet you mean one more or less one symbol for each sound, I mean, no language has that perfectly. There, all, there may have just been one alphabet that spread around the world and changed as it was spreading that started with the Phoenicians. I can't tell you when, uh, maybe a thousand BC, something like that. Um, and then as it went from, it was adopted uh, from language, culture to culture, they made modifications and, uh, and so on. Uh, sometimes the changes are necessary because different languages have different sounds. So you have to have different symbols. Uh, but sometimes, uh, I don't know, this is not something I'm an expert in, but um, the, I mean, the way of writing the languages of India, which is different from different 
for each language ultimately comes from Phoenician as well, I'm told, that was carried by, I'm not sure, scribes or, or whatever. Uh, but, you know, I mean, the answer is I, I can't give a technical answer to that question. Uh, but each col different cultures have adopted alphabets in different ways, even though they're often based on some pre-existing alphabet from a different culture, different country. You're listening to episode four of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Neumeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. We move on to the um, final set of questions. So uh, these were obviously, um, I've pinched them from James Lipton and modified a couple of the questions to make them more polite. Um, he borrowed them from Bernard Pivot in France, who borrowed them from Marcel, last name forgotten, uh, who was writing in the 1800s and answering them on a, might have been the turn of the 1900s. Um, I'm not particularly crash hot on this but these are the questions there's 10 of them they're meant to be quick fire but we'll see uh, and they're meant to be fun just a bit of light-heartedness at the end what makes you happiest well it depends if you mean like totally personally like a lobster dinner or something that makes me really happy because i love it so much but if you mean more globally i think seeing more and more acceptance of diversity um in, i mean when i moved to vancouver 15 years ago and you almost never saw ethnically mixed groups of young people. They kind of kept to themselves. And now it's totally mixed um, that Vancouver has enormous um, South Asian and East, uh, East Asian, mainly Chinese population. Caucasians are less than half. And you look at groups of young people and it's mostly mixed. That's, that really makes me happy. What is your least favorite word? Yeah. Well, you know, everybody's least favorite word, this shows up on the blogs about language, not necessarily mine, but everybody's least favorite word is moist. Yeah. And there's this moist avoidance. I mean, it, it maybe it conjures up secretions or something. I don't know. Um, and so people avoid using the word moist, even though moisture and moisturizer uh, are fine. Nobody objects to them. But there's, it's been well documented. People will do anything to avoid saying moist. What sound or noise do you love? I love the sound of thunder as long as I'm not standing in a thunderstorm. What makes you saddest? Well, opposition to diversity, I guess. <laughs> I mean, we, you brought up Donald Trump, so I can't say that I brought it up. But people, I mean, the refusal to accept... Um, well, I mean, homophobia, racism, etc. I mean... I, there's still plenty of that everywhere in the English-speaking world and elsewhere. That certainly okay. doesn't make me happy. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I don't know if I'd want to hear this, but what he'd probably say is, who let you in? How did you get here? You're listening to episode four of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Neumeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. This was episode four of the Docio Podcast, hosted by Edmund Conroy, interviewing Professor Frederick Neumeyer.
Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast or on our website at docio.edconroy.co.uk. And please don't forget to subscribe using your favourite podcast listening platform. This is the Docio Podcast. I'm Edmund Conroy. This was episode four, The Meaning of Linguistics, part two. And my guest was Professor Frederick J. Neumeyer. That's all we have time for on this episode. Join me next time when I will be speaking with Professor Michael Cholby on the meaning of death and dying. Until next time, thank you for listening and have a great life. Goodbye for now. Provided by freepd.com under a Creative Commons license zero. Additional voiceover work by Hannah Conroy. All rights reserved. Copyright 2021, the Docio Podcast. If you would like to support the Docio podcast, then please visit our website shop to purchase merchandise or visit patreon.com forward slash docio to financially subscribe to the podcast. Your contribution alone could help the podcast make many more episodes.